A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, Part 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Part 9. Downfall of the Athenian Empire. Prince Cyrus was zealous, but his zeal to intervene actively and furnish pay to the Peloponnesian seamen might have been of little use, were it not for the simultaneous appointment of a new Spartan admiral, who possessed distinguished ability and inordinate ambition. This was Lysander, who was destined to bring the long war to its close. He gained the confidence of his seamen by his care for their interests, and he won much influence over Cyrus by being absolutely proof against the temptation of bribes, a quality at which an Oriental greatly marvelled. In prosecuting the aims of his ambition, Lysander was perfectly unscrupulous, and he was a skilful diplomatist as well as an able general. While Cyrus and Lysander were negotiating, Alcibiades, after an exile of eight years, had returned to his native city. He had been elected strategos, and had received an enthusiastic welcome. Time had, in some measure, dulled the sense of the terrible injuries which he had inflicted on his country, and his share in the recent recovery of the Hellespontine cities had partly at least atoned but it was rather hope for future benefits than forgiveness for past wrongs that moved the Athenians to let bygones be bygones. They trusted in his capacity as a general, and they thought that by his diplomatic skill they might still be able to come to terms with Persia. So a decree was passed, giving him full powers for the conduct of the war, and he was solemnly freed from the curse which rested upon him as profaner of the Eleusinian rites he had an opportunity of making his peace with the divinities of Eleusis. Ever since the occupation of Decalia, which he had done so much to bring about, the annual procession from Athens along the sacred way to the Eleusinian shrine had been suspended, and the mystic Iacus had been conveyed by sea. Under the auspices of Alcibiades, who protected the procession by an escort of troops, the solemnity was once more celebrated in the usual way. It is possible that, if he had been bold enough to seize the opportunity of this tide of popularity, he might have established a tyranny at Athens, but he probably thought that such a venture would hardly be safe until he achieved further military or diplomatic successes. The opportunity was lost, and did not recur. A slight incident completely changed the current of feeling in Athens. An Athenian fleet was at Notion, keeping guard on Ephesus, and Lysander succeeded in defeating it and capturing fifteen ships. Though Alcibiades was not present at the battle, he was responsible and lost his prestige at Athens, where the tidings of a decisive victory was confidently expected. New generals were appointed immediately, and Alcibiades withdrew to a castle on the Hellespont, which he had provided for himself as a refuge in case of need. Conon succeeded him in chief command of the navy. The Peloponnesians during the following winter organized a fleet of greater strength than they had had for many years, a hundred and forty ships. 
but Lysander had to make place for a new admiral, Callicratidas. The Peloponnesians at first carried all before them. The fort of Delphinian in Chios and the town of Methymna in Lesbos were taken. Conon, who had only seventy ships, was forced into a battle outside Mytilene and lost thirty triremes in the action. The remainder were blockaded in the harbour of Mytilene. The situation was critical, and Athens did not underrate the danger. The gold and silver dedications in the temples of the Acropolis were melted to defray the costs of a new armament. Freedom was promised to slaves, citizenship to resident aliens, for their services in the emergency, and at the end of a month Athens and her allies sent a fleet of 150 triremes to relieve Mytilene. Callicratidas, who had now 170 ships, left 50 to maintain the blockade, and sailed with the rest to meet the foe. A great battle was fought near the islets of the Arginusai, south of Lesbos, and the Athenians were victorious. Seventy Spartan ships were sunk or taken, and Callicratidas was slain. An untimely north wind hindered the victors from rescuing the crews of their wrecked ships, as well as from sailing to Mytilene to destroy the rest of the hostile fleet. The success had not been won without a certain sacrifice. Twenty-five ships had been lost with their crews. It was believed that many of the men, floating about on the wreckage, might have been saved if the officers had taken proper measures. The commanders were blamed. The matter was taken up by politicians at Athens. The generals were suspended from their office and summoned to render an account of their conduct. They shifted the blame on the triarchs, and the triarchs, one of whom was Theramenes, in order to shield themselves, accused the generals of not having issued the orders for rescue, until the high wind made the execution impossible. We are not in a position to judge the question, for the decision must entirely depend on the details of the situation, and as to the details we have no certainty. It is not clear, for instance, whether the storm was sufficiently violent to prevent any attempt at a rescue. The presumption is, however, that the Athenian people were right in the conviction that there had been criminal negligence somewhere, and the natural emotion of indignation which they felt betrayed them into committing a crime themselves. The question was judged by the Assembly, and not by the ordinary courts. Two sittings were held, and the eight generals who had been present at Arginusai were condemned to death and confiscation of property. Six, including Thrasyllus and Pericles, son of the great statesman, were executed. The other two had prudently kept out of the way. Whatever were the rights of the case, the penalty was unduly severe, but the worst feature of the proceedings was that the assembly violated a recognised usage of the city by pronouncing sentence on all the accused together, instead of judging the case of each separately. Formerly illegal, indeed it was not, for the supporters of the generals had not the courage to apply the graphe paranormon, Protests had no effect on the excited multitude thirsty for vengeance. It was an interesting incident that the philosopher Socrates, who happened on the fatal day to be one of the Pritanes, objected to putting the motion. All constitutions, democracy, like oligarchy and monarchy, have their own dangers and injustices. This episode illustrates the gravest kind of injustice which a primary assembly swayed by a sudden current of violent feeling, and unchecked by any responsibility, sometimes commits, and repents.
The victory of Argenusai restored to the Athenians the command of the eastern Aegean, and induced the Lacedaemonians to repeat the same propositions of peace which they had made four years ago after the Battle of Cizicus, namely that Decalia should be evacuated, and that otherwise each party should remain just as it was. Through the influence of the demagogue, Cleophon, who is said to have come into the assembly drunk, the offer was rejected. Nothing was left for the Spartans but to reorganize their fleet. Etionicus had gathered together the remnants of the ships and gone to Chios, but he was unable to pay the seamen, who were forced to work as laborers on the fields of Chian farmers. In the winter this means of support failed, and threatened by starvation they formed a conspiracy to pillage the town of Chios. The conspirators agreed to carry a reed-stick in order to recognize one another. Etionicus discovered the plot, but there were so many reed-bearers that he shrank from an open conflict and devised a stratagem. Walking through the streets of Chios, attended by fifteen armed men, he met a man who suffered from ophthalmia, coming out of a surgeon's house, and seeing that he had a reed-stick, ordered him to be put to death. A crowd gathered and demanded why the man was put to death. The reply was, because he had a reed-stick. When the news spread, every reed-bearer was so frightened that he threw his reed away. The Chians then consented to supply a month's pay for the men, who were immediately embarked. This incident shows that money had ceased to flow in from Persia. It was generally felt that if further Persian cooperation was to be secured, and the Peloponnesian cause to be restored, the command of the fleet must again be entrusted to Lysander. But there was a law at Sparta that no man could be Navarch a second time. On this occasion the law was evaded by sending Lysander out as secretary, but on the understanding that the actual command lay with him, and not with the nominal admiral. Lysander visited Cyrus at Sardis, asserted his old influence over him, and obtained the money he required. With the help of organized parties in the various cities, he soon fitted out a fleet. An unlooked-for event gave him still greater power and prestige. King Darius was very ill, his death was expected, and Cyrus was called to his bedside. During his absence, Cyrus entrusted to his friend Lysander the administration of his satrapy and the tribute. He knew that money was no temptation to this exceptional Spartan, and he feared to trust such power to a Persian noble. With these resources behind him, Lysander speedily proved his ability. Attacked at Ephesus by the Athenian fleet under Conon, he declined battle. Then, when the enemy had dispersed, he sailed forth, first to Rhodes, and then across the Aegean to the coast of Attica, where he had a consultation with Agis. Recrossing the Aegean, he made for the Hellespont, and laid siege to Lampsacus. The Athenian fleet of one hundred and eighty ships reunited, and followed him thither. Lampsacus had been taken before they reached Sestos, but they determined now to force him to accept the battle, which he had refused at Ephesus, and with this view proceeded along the coast till they reached Igospotomy, Goats' Rivers, an open beach without harbourage, over against Lampsacus. It was a bad position, as all the provisions had to be fetched from Sestos, at a distance of about two miles, while the Peloponnesian fleet was in an excellent harbour, with a well-supplied town behind. Sailing across the strait, the Athenians found the enemy drawn up for battle, but under orders not to move until they were attacked, 
and in such a strong position that an attack would have been unwise. They were obliged to return to Igospotomy. For four days the same thing befell. Each day the Athenian fleet sailed across the strait and endeavoured to lure Lysander into an engagement. Each day its efforts were fruitless. From his castle in the neighbourhood Alcibiades descried the dangerous position of the Athenians, and riding over to Igospotomy, earnestly counselled the generals to move to Sestos. His sound advice was received with coldness, perhaps with insult. When the fleet returned from its daily cruise to Lampsacus, the seamen used to disembark and scatter on the shore. On the fifth day Lysander sent scout-ships, which, as soon as the Athenian crews had gone ashore for their meal, were to flash a bright shield as a signal. When the signal was given, the whole Peloponnesian squadron, consisting of about two hundred galleys, rode rapidly across the strait, and found the Athenian fleet defenceless. There was no battle, no resistance. Twenty ships, which were in a condition to fight, escaped. The remaining one hundred and sixty were captured at once. It was generally believed that there was treachery among the generals, and it is possible that Adeimantus, who was taken prisoner and spared, had been bribed by Lysander. All the Athenians who were taken, to the number of three or four thousand, were put to death. The chief commander, Conon, who was not among the unready, succeeded in getting away. Greek ships usually unshipped their sails when they prepared for a naval battle, and the sails of the Peloponnesian triremes had been deposited at Cape Abarnis, near Lampsacus. Informed of this, Conon boldly shot across to Abarnis, seized the sails, and so deprived Lysander of the power of an effective pursuit. It would have been madness for the responsible commander to return to Athens with the tidings of such a terrible disaster, and Conon, sending home twelve of the twenty triremes which had escaped, sailed himself with the rest to the protection of Evagoras, the king of Salamis in Cyprus. Never was a decisive victory gained with such small sacrifice as that which Lysander gained at Igospotomy. The tidings of ruin reached the Piraeus at night, and on that night not a man slept. The city remembered the cruel measure which it had once and again meted out to others, as to Milos and Scione, and shuddered at the thought that even such measure might now be meted out to itself. It was hard for the Athenians to realise that at one blow their sea power was annihilated, and they had now to make preparations for sustaining a siege. But the blockade was deferred by the policy of Lysander. He did not intend to attack Athens, but to starve it into surrender, and with this view he drove all the Athenian clerics, whom he found in the islands, to Athens, in order to swell the starving population. Having completed the subjugation of the Athenian Empire in the Hellespont and Thrace, and ordered affairs in those regions, Lysander sailed at length into the Saronic Gulf with a hundred and fifty ships, occupied Aegina, and blockaded the Piraeus. At the same time the Spartan king Pausanias entered Attica, and joining forces with Agis, encamped in the Academe, west of the city. But the walls were too strong to attack, and at the beginning of winter the army withdrew, while the fleet remained near the Piraeus. As provisions began to fail, the Athenians made a proposal of peace, offering to resign their empire and become allies of Lacedaemon. The envoys were turned back at Selassia, 
they would not be received by the ephors unless they brought more acceptable terms and it was intimated that the demolition of the long walls for a length of ten stades was an indispensable condition of peace it was folly to resist yet the athenians resisted the demagogue cleophon who had twice hindered the conclusion of peace when it might have been made with honour first after Kidzicus, then after Arginusai, now hindered it again, when it could be made only with humiliation. An absurd decree was passed, that no one should ever propose to accept such terms. But the danger was that such obstinacy would drive the enemy into insisting on an unconditional surrender, for the situation was hopeless. Theramenes undertook to visit Lysander, and endeavour to obtain more favourable conditions, or at all events, to discover how matters lay. His real object was to gain time, and let the people come to their senses. He remained three months with Lysander, and when he returned to Athens, he found the citizens prepared to submit on any terms whatever. People were dying of famine, and the reaction of feeling had been marked by the execution of Cleophon, who was condemned on the charge of evading military service. Theramenes was sent to Sparta with full powers. It is interesting to find that during these anxious months a decree was passed recalling to Athens an illustrious citizen who had been found wanting as a general, but whose genius was to make immortal the war now drawing to its close, the historian Thucydides. An assembly of the Peloponnesian allies was called together at Sparta to determine how they should deal with the fallen foe. The general sentiment was that no mercy should be shown, that Athens should be utterly destroyed, and the whole people sold into slavery. But Sparta never felt the same bitterness towards Athens as that which animated Corinth and Thebes. She was neither a neighbour nor a commercial rival. The destruction of Athens might have been politically profitable, but Sparta, with all her faults, could on occasion rise to nobler views she resolutely rejected the barbarous proposal of the confederacy. She would not blot out a Greek city which had done such noble services to Greece against the Persian invader. That was more than two generations ago. But it was not to be forgotten. Athens was saved by her past. The terms of the peace were, the long walls and fortifications of the Piraeus were to be destroyed, the Athenians lost all their foreign possessions, but remained independent, confined to Attica and Salamis. Their whole fleet, with the exception of twelve triremes, was forfeited. All exiles were allowed to return. Athens became the ally of Sparta, pledged to follow her leadership. When the terms were ratified, Lysander sailed into the Piraeus. The demolition of the long walls immediately began. The Athenians and their conquerors together pulled them down to the music of flute-players, and the jubilant allies thought that freedom had at length dawned for the Greeks. Lysander permitted Athens to retain twelve triremes, and having inaugurated the destruction of the fortifications, sailed off to reduce Samos. It is not to be supposed that all Athenians were dejected and wretched at the terrible humiliation which had befallen their native city. There were numerous exiles who owed their return to her calamity, and the extreme oligarchic party rejoiced in the foreign occupation, regarding it as an opportunity for the subversion of the democracy, and the re-establishment of a constitution like that which had been tried after the Sicilian expedition. 
Theramenes looked forward to making a new attempt to introduce his favourite polity. Of the exiles, the most prominent and determined was Critias, son of Calaiscrus, and a member of the same family as the lawgiver Solon. He was a man of many parts, a pupil of Gorgias, and a companion of Socrates, an orator, a poet, and a philosopher. Combination was formed between the exiles and the home oligarchs. A common plan of action was organized, and the chief democratic leaders were presently seized and imprisoned. The intervention of Lysander was then invoked for the establishing of a new constitution, and awed by his presence, the assembly passed a measure proposed by Dracontides that a body of thirty should be nominated for the purpose of drawing up laws and managing public affairs until the code should be completed. The oligarchs did not take the trouble to repeal the law which would expose the proposer of the measure to prosecution by the Graphi Paranomon. They felt sure of their power. Critias, Theramenes, and Dracontides were among the thirty who were appointed. The ruin of the power of Athens had fallen out to the advantage of the oligarchical party, and it has even been suspected that the oligarchs had for many years past deliberately planned to place the city at the mercy of the enemy for the ulterior purpose of destroying the democracy. The part played by Theramenes in the condemnation of the generals who had the indiscretion to win Arginusai, the parts he subsequently played in negotiating the peace and in establishing the oligarchy, the serious suspicions of treachery in connection with the disaster of Igospotomy, have especially suggested this conjecture. The attempt of the four hundred on a previous occasion to come to terms with Sparta may be taken into account, and the comparatively lenient terms imposed on Athens might seem to point in the same direction. One thing seems certain. The oligarchic party had been distinctly aiming at peace, and the repeated opposition of Cleophon, in politic, as we have seen, indicates that he suspected oligarchical designs. It must also be admitted that the conduct of the Athenians in fixing their station at Igospotomy, and delivering themselves to the foe like sheep led to the altar, argues a measure of folly which seems almost incredible, if there were not treachery behind. And the suspicion is confirmed by the clemency shown to Adimantus. It must, however, be acknowledged that it is hard to understand how the treason could have been effectually carried out without the connivance of Conon, the commander-in-chief, yet no suspicion seems to have been attached to him. The whole problem of the oligarchic intrigues of the last eight years of the war remains wrapped in far greater mystery than the mutilation of the Hermae. End of part nine.